0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وبه نستعين على أمور الدنيا والدين والعاقبة المتقين والعذوان إلى على الظالمين وصلى الله وسلم على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. It is a pleasure that we have with us today our highly esteemed guest, uh, the historian, the scholar, the Imam uh, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick. And he's going to be uh, discussing with us and teaching us about some very important topics. So to start off with, we will be discussing, since it is October and it is Black History Month, we're going to be talking about some of the influential black figures in Islam. Again, uh, Sheikh, we are very happy to have you here. And we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for giving us this opportunity to make this a blessed gathering. And we'll hope to benefit from you and your insight, inshallah ta'ala. ta'ala. Mm-hmm. Um, so to start off with, Sheikh it is it is black history month but why is it why is it important that we have this discussion why we, why is it important to talk about uh, the important black figures within the islamic context
1: um naam bismillah rahman rahim rabbil alamin wa u-salli wa sallama ala sayyidina wa walim wa al-Akhirin, nabiyana muhammadan wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baarakas salaam ma alhamdulillah it's a great effort uh, that you're making uh, to put out information to our community and to the greater society, and I pray that Allah blesses uh, your podcast and you know all the brothers and sisters uh, who are doing this work in the UK, uh, and may Allah increase our numbers, you know, so that the message of Islam uh, can can get out to the general population. In the United States, um, back in the early 20th century, there were a number of African American scholars. Uh, Carter Wilson was one of them. And you know, they, re- they went through the h- history curriculums and they realized that there was a, a definite planned omission of information concerning black people. When I say black, I mean people of, of, of African descent, whether they be on the continent or whether they be in Europe or in the Americas. There was a planned program. And that was in order to um, decrease the value of black people, to perpetuate slavery, to perpetuate a system of oppression uh, that was spreading out throughout the colonies uh, and especially in the United States and and the Americas and Brazil. This uh, concept of, um, or or program you could say, uh, movement of white supremacy uh, was to make uh, people of European descent dominant in the world, not only economically and politically, But even psychologically, educationally, and even spiritually. And it went to the point where they even brought out pictures of Isa, of Jesus, uh, as a white man. And and by making him white and, and teaching people that he's the son of God or God, that's the most extreme thing that you can do for racism because what you're saying is that white people are God like. And by painting, the devil, and most evil forces in black—it's uh, the opposite. So even within our language, racism entered into our language. We would say, for instance, um, you know, today is a black Wednesday, and uh, which means it's a bad day. You say black magic is evil magic, but white magic it's is good magic. Is innocent, yeah. pure, and holy magic. You see, so this is a psychological thing, and so it goes all throughout our way of life. And we are looking at the educational side of it. We're looking at the information uh, that has been given, you know, to people in a systematic way in order to raise up one group and to lower the other group. So what Carter G. Woodson uh, and, and the scholars did was they initiated Black History uh, Week and then Black History Month. And this was adopted, you know, by the United States, Canada, other countries. Um, by the UK as well, I believe, and England as well, uh, it has been adopted. And the intention is, is not to just um, glorify black people. The intention is to stop, you know, you know, and to bring some information to right the wrong and to clear up the intentional omission of information. And, and, and so it is important for us. And as Muslims, we're part of the society itself. our education is impacted by this as well our children are impacted in the public schools uh, even the islamic schools that are using textbooks or downloading information from the internet they're affected by by racism uh, as well and um, what i noticed uh, being muslim having accepted islam in 1970 you know and then traveled to different muslim countries and when i was studying islam I noticed that when they talked about the spread of Islam across Africa, that Islam stopped at North Africa, that it never went below the Sahara. So even Muslims have this wrong understanding uh, of the role of black people, darker-skinned people, uh, in the leadership of Islam, and especially in the early generations of Islam. So therefore, it, it is crucial for us You know as seekers of truth um, that we right the wrongs and and that we bring in proper information uh, in order that we begin to uh, appreciate each other so this is important for the general society but it's also important for muslims as well
0: so although we all agree and understand that uh, the religion of islam isn't particularly focused on any race but because of this historical omission it is important to shed light upon these individuals these uh, um, uh, cultures and societies, would you say that the objective and the goal is to
1: get to a place where we don't need such a thing as Black History Month? Exactly, because really Black History Month should be History Month. Yes. Like we we say, we have Islamic History Month, actually in October. Here, uh, Black History Month for us is in February. Oh, I see. Uh, There shouldn't be a specific Islamic History Month recognized by the Canadian government or the American government. That should be part of the, the history curriculum. Yes. So what we're doing is, is, is starting to change the narrative, to bring in solid information so that eventually, inshallah, it would be in all of the curriculums and people could understand um, the, uh, the, the achievements of people of color, of, of different religions um, equally. And concerning Muslims, you know, generally when I used to talk about this, you know, uh, people would say, Muslims would say, there's no racism in Islam. Like, that's the first thing that they would say. And I say, true, that's right. There's no racism in Islam, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah." Muslims can be racist. And there's a difference between Islam, which is the perfected religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through the sunnah of the Prophet, you know, who broke down racism and tribalism, There's a difference between that model that we have and our own personal lives. So what we're dealing with is not a problem with Islam. It's a problem with Muslims and how our cultures have actually affected our practice of Islam. And even the biases that we carry, our tribal uh, biases, can affect us in Islam. And I found this out. Uh, when I uh, had graduated from Medina and I was in the field, I graduated in 1979, awesome. and um, I was in the field for a period of time doing dawah in, you know, Jamaica in the United States. Uh, and then I came, then I came back to Canada where I had accepted Islam, and they asked me to be the imam of a big masjid. So I was the imam of the Jami Mosque, which was the largest masjid at that time, or awesome. uh, maybe in the whole country. And uh, people were pouring in. And so we had all the different nationalities. And I was innocent. I just look at Muslims as my brothers and sisters, no difference between us. Then uh, as time went by and I started to get close you know, to the different Muslim groupings, I realized there's tribal differences between people. There are ethnic differences. So a person could come from India and Pakistan I thought they were all the same. I, the curry and roti is there. I thought they were Hanafi and Fiqh. I thought they were all the same. And then I realized the difference between Bengali and Punjabi and uh Pathan and you know and Arabs, you know, I had known that there are some differences between the Arabs of the Jazirat Al-Arab, the Arabian Peninsula, and say Moroccans or Lebanese and Syrians. And then the Somali community came in and I met my brothers and sisters from Somalia. And mashallah, people were generally Shafi and Fiqh, and you know the, the the culture Abdi, and you know the names yeah. were you know very much similar. But then when I got really close to the community, I realized there was Darod and Is and Ishak and Hawiya, uh, and all these different groupings. Yeah. So this is an issue, and we have to face it. And 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 this is where being honest to ourselves. Um, as it was in the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu we deal with the demons that are in us. And the demons of race, hatred, and tribal uh, hatred is uh, very serious uh, in our minds and our hearts. And so um, we're attempting to try to deal with this within our community. Jazakallah khair. And of course, one of the ways to deal
0: with this is through education and teaching the people of their history and how we have a shared history, uh, despite of our different races. When it comes to Islam, um, usually when we talk about black figures in Islam, the first one that comes to mind عنه, is Bilal ibn Rabbah. And rightfully so, he's a great companion of the Prophet sallallahu the Mu'addin of Rasulullah. But uh, people's knowledge regarding the Sahaba should go beyond that. So could you please uh, share with us some of the prominent companions that were of African descent uh, around the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam?
1: Yes, this is extremely important, uh, and it reached the point where when I was living in South Africa, that um, the person who called the Adhan, they would call that person Bilal Bong, You know, so that, you know, anybody who calls Adhan is Bilal, right? So that's the only position. Yeah. Uh, and, and generally, they would get brothers from Malawi, you know, uh, to, get, to call the Adhan, because they are really good scholars, but they make them call the Adhan. Um, and, and so I, I recognized that there was, you know, a, a bias now. Going into the Arabic language, and going into the historical text, the original books of Sirah, and Tariq, and history, um, I started to realize that there was something that was hidden in plain sight. So, this is a deep concept now. Yes. It's hidden, in but it's in plain sight. sight. And, you know, the same way that you know, you can have a picture, and there will be different people who will look at it in different ways based upon how their brain is hooked up. Yes. Well, people tended to paint the Prophet Sallallahu whether mentally or sometimes even physically. In certain cultures, you'd see pictures of Persians. Persians would make pictures of Sahaba. Generally, they would cover the face you know, of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or the Turks would do it. But every time you know, when you see the Sahaba uh, or the early Muslims, they look like Turks when the Turks did it. They look like Persians. So the people, people did it, yes. so people tend tend to um, project themselves, you know, into their um, important figures, their righteous, you know, leaders and figures. And so, when I went back and really looked at, at the sources, and others have been looking at these sources as well, we re- we realize that you know we have a concept now that we're using of white and black. This is because of white supremacy, and and white means European people. And black basically means uh, African people of color. So yes. a black person in, in in America or in other places in Africa could be light skinned or dark skinned as long as they relate to the African continent. Malcolm X, who's one of the famous um, uh, black Muslims in America, he was very light skinned. He had red hair. Yeah, you know, but but he's black, right? So I mean, but when you say Aswad in Arabic or Abyad, It's a different concept. Uh, There's a context to the use of the word. Just like uh, in Surah to Yusuf, it it is saying Wajad Sayyara. It is saying this Sayyara came along, uh, which you know the Mufassirin will tell you it's it's a kafila, it's a caravan that came along in the story of Yusuf. But if you say Sayyara today, you have to talk about Toyota, Mercedes, whatever. So it's the context of the word, right? Yes. Now, when it comes to color, the Arabs and they have, and they define themselves, and you and you can go to Lisan al Arab and whatever, the way they de- they define themselves as brown black people, that's literally what Arabs were at the time. The white people, what we would call white people, the Benu Asfar, yeah. um, were actually the Romans, and the Benu Ahma, which would be the the red reddish type of people, they were the Persians. And so literally in the Hejaz area, I'm talking yes. about in particular, the, the original people living there had been intermingling with East Africans, with people from the Sudan, uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Somalia for centuries. And so, you know, what we considered to be brown or black uh, in those days uh, could have been a normal person. The only difference was more a tribal identity. It wasn't based on the color of your skin. Whereas white supremacy today, you know, has actually made the color of the skin the important factor in determining the worth of a person. And so it was completely different uh, in those times. And when you look at the life of the Prophet Muhammad, we recognize uh, that his second mother, his dry nurse, Um Ayman, Baraka, uh, may Allah be pleased with her. She was, an Ethiopian, she was an Ethiopian woman. And she was the one who, when uh, Amina, when the uh, prophet's mother died, you know, she was given, you know, the responsibility of taking care of him. And, and she said that from that moment, when he was a young boy, I never left him. I never left him physically. I never left him, you know, spiritually. I was always with him. And, and it is reported that later on uh, in Medina, that you know, if she would enter into the masjid uh, it, or anywhere, you know, he would stand up and go over to her, and he would say, "Ya ummi, ya umma." He, he would he would call her his mother. Kind of and this is a black woman from Ethiopia, okay? And it's it's hidden in plain sight because you yeah. say, "Oh, ya um, amen, baraka," and generally they say a slave. But we have to realize slavery was not based on color. Because Salman al-Farsi, brother when he came in, he was a slave. And he was a Persian. Persian. When Suhayb al-Rumi, uh, who was Iraqi, but you know he lived with the Europeans and he looked like you know a Roman, uh, he was blond hair, blue eyed. He came into the hejaz uh, uh, as a slave. So slavery was not based upon color. It was based upon power. You know, if you had power, you're not a slave. And in terms of power. And, and this I'll be discussing later on in courses that I'm, I hope to do, inshallah. In terms of power, Black people at that time were not necessarily weak, destitute people. You see, we have this wrong image in our mind of Black people as slaves being whipped and in chains, and, and Islam raises them up, they had nothing, and suddenly they have everything. That was the case for certain individuals. But other individuals, that was not the case. Because the Prophet, peace be upon him, was born in Amal in the year of the elephants. Yes. And that is when Abraha and the Ethiopians attacked uh, Mecca from Yemen. They were considered to be one of the four powers in the world. They were a superpower. They had an army with elephants, which is like tanks or helicoptered gunships or drones, right? Yeah. It, it changed the nature of warfare. And so the Ethiopians, um, they were not weak people. They were not seen as weak people. And this is an extremely important point to recognize. And the fact that because they had been trading back and forth and intermarriage was there, uh, it was not strange to see uh, within the lineages of the, of the companions, Ethiopians. People are shocked when they find out that Umar ibn Khattar, lahuan, that uh, one of his grandmothers, um, you know, I think it was on his mother's side, was actually an Ethiopian. Subhanallah. Omar had Ethiopian blood. And you'll see many of the companions actually had uh, this blood. And, and, and in some reports, Ali ibn Abi Talib, brother Allahwan, is actually described as a dark-skinned person. Now, that's a shock to a lot of the Persian people who glorify Ali, right? And when they do pictures of him, they make him look yeah. like, like a Persian, right? But actually, he was a black man. You know what we would consider yeah. be a, a dark-skinned person now that's a shock to the system of a lot of people because they've been raised with pictures and images and when they say the word the Prophet, some they say they they use abyad. but when yeah. they use abyad in those terms it meant what we call light skin because he's described as not being dark skin and not yeah. being what red he's sort of yes. in between he's an in-between type of color which is what we would call today a uh, light brown or, or a light skinned person you see so yeah. this is the first thing that you have to we have to realize so being black or being you know uh, brown was a common thing at that time and it, it was really your, your tribal affiliation um, which separated is more like a caste or a class type of thing instead of a straight out race thing now, and so this is a very important point that we have to get across in our minds and um Ayman uh, eventually married Zaid people know the story of the companions of the prophet sallallahu yes. who was a servant of the prophet and their son Usama ibn Zaid uh, uh illustrious companion you know one of the great ones of the prophet you know used to say ana Usama illa Fatima he said i loved Usama you know as young people uh, more than anybody except Fatima yeah. And so, Usama was beloved, and he's a black man. And, and he led the army of the Muslims around 16, 17 years old. Uh, so, you know, close companions right from the Meccan period uh, were actually um, dark skinned people. Salim Mola Abi Hudayfa, radiallahu who's considered one of the four top Quran reciters, he was a black man also uh there's stories of julaibib there's sad al-aswat there is muhja there is Murith. there's a series of stories it is hidden in plain sight and if you actually go into the the the, the, the texts um looking for this now we normally don't look for color right yeah. because that's not an islamic thing to do uh, although other people did it you know um in persia and turkey but we're not supposed to do that but now because of white supremacy and the weakness of the minds of the muslims we want to right the wrongs so okay let's just reanalyze it again so 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 we start to see uh uh you know some of the people who are there what is a shock for a, a lot of people is that to find out that bilal the long one, he had a brother named khalid ibn rabah who, and and Khalid, the stories about Khalid, you go to uh, uh, Ibn Kathir, Bidayah, and Nehayir, uh, and al Tabari and other books, and you'll see. There's even a story how they're in Syria, because after the death of the Prophet, Bilal went to Syria, and so his brother wanted to get married to one of the uh, Arab tribes, and the Arabs in Syria, of course, you know, were light-skinned people. You know, by that time, the Syrians, so you know, he wanted to get married, and they refused, and so Bilal had to intervene. And when they saw Bilal, they said, you know, stock for Allah, you know, yeah. you, you know, can marry the brother. I'm putting it in my words, right? Yeah, the point and... is that Bilal had a brother. Bilal also had a sister named Rafira Bint Rabah. Okay, so there were um, other Sahabiyat, um, Sa'ira, uh, Nabha Al-Habshiyah, uh, Um Zafa, Barira, Um Mihjan, you know, so there's a number of names that actually yeah. have appeared prominently within our yeah. tech, but we don't put color to it. Now, when we reanalyze it in order to educate people properly uh, about color, uh, then it's there. And, you know, um, this, this is an unfortunate situation because uh, that's not how it's supposed to be. But recently, um, s- some black students, they were actually East Africans, uh, they were Somalis, you know, and, yes. and they were in one of the universities here, and you know they. And I'm going to be straightforward, you know, with what, what what I'm saying. You know, they joined the Muslim Student Association, and they recognized that it was mainly Arabs and Pakistanis who were in leadership, and they were denied leadership, and so they they were about to form a Black MSA, which which would include East Africans and also Caribbean people, Muslims. Now I'm talking Muslims. Subhanallah. We said, no, don't do this. So we had to have an anti-Black racism session with the students. I did it in a number of universities. And, you know, one of the ways to cure this is not by name-calling or belittling. It's just to bring the history of Islam in a positive way. And so when the other students saw Black people in the first generations as great Sahaba, it changed their understanding. Because I've even had, uh, you know, a, a brother come up to me, you know, and say that, you know, this is a black Muslim. or actually a sister, a black Muslim sister wearing hijab comes up to a meeting with other Muslims from different countries who are not black. One of the people there actually didn't even have a hijab on, but she came from a Muslim country. And they looked at the black sister and they said, um, uh, are you Muslim? She's got it, but because she's black, they yeah. can't put the two together, right? Yeah. So this is brainwashing and confusion that needs to be dealt with. And instead of doing it in a name-calling way, in a negative way, let's take the positive route. You know, and that is to bring the history and to show the contributions of people of color from the early generation and how Islam spread. And and you know what's a shock? Um, And I'll be bringing some of this in the courses that I'll be doing soon, inshallah. But something shocked me really heavy. The first generations of believers were basically Hijazi Arabs, right? Meccans and Medina, Aus and Khazraj. And then the sprinkling of Arabs from other parts, some from Yemen, uh, and then some from Nejd and, you know, other areas. But the majority were the Hijazis, okay? Who were connected to East African people and culture and, you know, whatever. That's the early generation. Then there was the Hijrah, the migration to uh, Abyssinia, to Al-Habasha. Yes. 32 Abyssinians, it is recorded, made the Hijrah to Medina. 32. So they were part of the group that was in Medina. And at that time, the the masjid of the Prophet is nothing like today. It was very small, you know, and the community was actually small. It was not a large community, you know. So when 313, you know, men went to the Battle of Bedar, that's a large army. That's that's like taking almost every able, you know, man to go to fight. Today, we think 313 is nothing, but that's a big uh, force within a small community. So, the early Muslims were basically made up of Hijazi Arabs, Abyssinians, also the black Sahabans that we were talking about, and even there was another brother named Muhammad ibn Maslama, you know, who was you know, a black man also, who was an ally of the house. So, these are, this is the first generation. There was no Syrians. There was no Iraqis. No Turks. There was no Turks. There was no Persians. There was only a few Yemenis, uh, by the way. So, this is the main generation. And if you really look at it objectively, they were basically black people or brown people. They were East Africans and they were Hijazis. And the Prophet said in many ways, and in one authentic hadith, he said, The best of people is in my generation then the one that followed them, and then the one that followed them. So the early generation, which is made up of Hijazi Arabs, a sprinkling of Persian and Roman and other places, sprinkling, but basically made up of Abyssinians, Hijazis, people of color. This is the best generation. That shocked me. And I'm thinking about this Somali sister coming up and the other ones are looking at her and she's in hijab and saying, are you a Muslim? She probably looked more like the original Muslims in the first generation than the other people. And, you know, so so, so this, this is a hard reality that we have to face. And I say it again for our brothers and sisters, you know, who, who might feel uh, something negative about it. There's no racism in Islam, but Muslims can be racist. So this is the reason why we are bringing this out, in order to heal our community. Because the general society is going through a healing process with racism now. You're hearing terminologies. You're seeing people marching in the streets. They want curriculums changed. They want, you know, black people's lives to be accepted. You know, things are changing within, you know, the the, the society. And and we can't, we should be the leaders of this. But we can't just continue to look at everybody else. We have to look at ourselves. Because I believe, after being in a leadership position in the past over Muslims, that one one of our biggest problems after, you know, shirk, you know, and some of our cultural problems, it is tribalism. It is this ethnicity. This is one of the biggest problems that divides Muslims. And I found out that many times what's happening, you know, is a tribal thing. I mean, it reached the point in the Jami Mosque. We had all the tribes, all the nations there, right? And here I am. They, they accepted me because, you know, I'm an Afro-American. I'm not, I'm none of the tribes, right? So they sort of accepted me. Yeah. One day I couldn't take it. And I stood up in front of the group and I said, uh, I'm sorry to say this, but Abu Hanifa was not a Pakistani. Right? Because <laughs> the Pakistanis tend to be Hanafi, right? Yes. Abu yes. Hanifa was not a Pakistani, he was an Arab. And I stood up and I said, Imam Shafi was not a Somali. He was not Indonesian or Yemeni. He was an Arab. Because people were taking their medhab, their school of thought, almost like their tribal identity. So how can you be a Pakistani or Indian and you're a Shafi or you're a Maliki? You know, how can you be a Somali? and become a Hanbali, yeah. Hanbali. Hanbali is supposed to be, you know, Saudis or Kuwaitis. How can you be a, a Somali and be a Hanbali? That's completely opposite what was what the reality of the great imams in the beginning of time, or the beginning of, of the Islamic movement. And we have to straighten this out because people tend to um, just follow slogans. They don't read beneath the lines. So this information, you know, is hidden in plain sight. The,
0: the picture you just painted, it's actually quite interesting, because if you go back to the books of tarikh and sirah, like you mentioned, they, don't, they won't tell you the color of the particular Sahabi or figure they're talking about. And this is why you've been hearing these names, but we didn't have, or many people don't have the picture you just showed, which yeah. is that the first community of Muslims with the Prophet were a very diverse community. In fact, you had a lot of people from African uh, origin there. That's and right. just correcting that would have a very good impact on people's understanding of Islam and Muslims. Mm-hmm. So perhaps... Now, when we write Sirah books and tarikh books, there should be an emphasis on who these people were. Um, okay. Earlier, uh, Sheikh Barak you've alluded to the uh, hijrah uh, to Abyssinia. Right. And this was a very significant uh, um, uh, time and, and experience for the Sahaba and in our Sira. Could you elaborate more on that, especially on uh, King Najashi and this empire?
1: Right. Um- Again, it's important for us to um, have the context. The Prophet is the fifth year after the prophethood in Mecca. His followers are being tortured and and, and killed. And so then, you know, he he tells them in in translation, you know, uh, go to Abyssinia. It would be better for you because in it, there is a king who will not tolerate oppression. And then he said, it is a land of truth. Go there until such time that, that you know your, your your matters will change. And so they went across the Red Sea uh, to the empire, which was known as Aksum. It was the Aksumite empire. And um, Aksum covered what is now present-day Eritrea, the highlands of Ethiopia. Also, possibly a little bit of the Sudan as well. Uh, and going over toward Djibouti, it, it was a very powerful uh, empire at the time, considered one of the four great empires in the world, um, you know, in the, you know, after uh, Isa, what they call AD, in the early few hundred years of AD. And so the Prophet well, sent them across there uh, seeking sanctuary. They were refugees. And this is an important point because what it means is the first Muslims to go into Africa if we use this term Africa and Arabia, we're not slave traders. You see, the Orientalists want to paint Arabs and Muslims as trading Africans as slaves. They always push up the slavery thing. So the first entrance into Africa is refugees. And it is an African king. An-Najashi is his title. His name was Ashama, Because the title An-Najashi um, in Arabic, we say Nagus uh, in English. And in his language, which was Tigray, for those who know Ethiopia, he was a Tigray yes. man, it is Nigash. Nigash was the actual name in Tigray. And so the title was just like the emperor or the king or the shah. So Pharaoh. he was, right, Pharaoh. So he was Ashama and Najashi. So Ashama was a Christian. And we know that Christianity had gone through a change. It was originally, you know, a, a religion of Tawheed. And in 325 AD, Constantine uh, united the Christians under the Trinity. But there were those Christians who refused to accept the Trinity. And the Prophet sallam, ran into monks. You remember when he was young and traveling and, and, and with uh, Abu Talib and he ran into, there was a monk on the road. Yes. Right. There's Bahira uh, and then later uh, Nestora. You know so this is a christian monk who's looking for signs of the last prophet so there were actually christians who refused to accept the trinity they they, they stayed with Tohid and they had to hide themselves so ethiopia at the time in Aksum, they had those who believed in one and those who believed in the trinity najashi himself uh, was of those who believed in the one god so when the companions uh, went uh, into Ethiopia and the Quraysh sent the two delegates to bring them back as we know in the story the, 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 the king brought out the companions and Jaffa ibn Abi Talib read from this chapter in the Quran the Najashi cried and the people in his court wept and the Najashi basically said there's no difference between you and us you have sanctuary so they stayed there and what is interesting, the Prophet Sallallahu wrote a letter to Najashi. And this letter can still be found today um, at the Top Museum in Istanbul, Turkey. Oh. And uh, I have a copy of the letter, which I'll be showing in my course that's coming soon, uh, and the translation. And it's amazing that, that the translation and how he addresses a, a Christian king. And you know, he 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 invites him to Islam and, and he starts to describe. The names of Allah subhanahu wa taala, so he he's he's confirming Tawhid, and you know he shows you know that um you know like even show differences, you know that 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 you know we believe that Isa salam you know is a, is a messenger of God, you know and, and and you know just like Adam was created from you know from clay, right? It's so so it's even like a inter interfaith dialogue, like. And then what's interesting is that the Prophet said, I invite you to Islam and your forces. Janood. He used the word Janood. I invite you and your forces to Islam. Now, if you step back and think about this, this is a move. I mean, it is the Prophet is dealing with revelation. But as a man, he was also a great thinker, he had great wisdom tactical wisdom and you know if you look at the context at the time the the army of abraha the elephants that the technology of the Ethiopians if they had accepted Islam at that point then the story is over man you wouldn't even have to go to Medina yeah because an army would have come back believing in Allah having elephants they would have taken Mecca and the whole of Islamic history would have been changed, right? Yes. But Allah knows best. Uh, it didn't happen at that time, and Najashi himself embraced Islam. And eventually, there was a uh, the, hijra, the major hijrah was called uh, to Yatrib. and uh, Najashi. Uh, continued on struggling in his country, and when he died, the Prophet was informed by inspiration and, and he gathered the companions together and said, Pray for your brother, you know, who has died. And this was Salatul Janaza uh, Lil Ghaib. So yes. it was the first time Janaza was made for an absent person, and that was An Najashi himself. So it's very significant, um, this hijrah, um, for a number of points. You know, number one, it shows the cooperation between the last prophet of Islam and a Christian emperor, right? That we can cooperate with Muwahidun, you know, amongst the people of the book, that we do have a relationship with the people of the book. And historically, and this is important because many black Christians don't understand this. They are brainwashed to think that, that, that Muslims are mainly Arabs, you know, or Turks, you know, who take people slaves. And, and that's a brainwashing. They, you know, even black Christians and white Christians need to see that Islam entered into Africa in a positive way. Okay. Secondly, that um, the, the 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 significance of that early generation, and that Najashi himself, who was considered to be one of the greatest uh, African Muslims in our history, um, and also that. You know, at least thirty-two uh, Abyssinians made the migration to uh, Al Madinah to Mina. At least thirty-two. So this is very significant in the early history, you know, to show the relationship between African people directly with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, not as slaves or freed slaves, but also as freed as as free people, and allies who actually had power and strength. JazakAllah khair. No, it, this is very
0: significant and, and very informative. Uh, there is a point you mentioned earlier that that made me think uh, when you mentioned that uh, Umar radiAllahu anhu actually has Ethiopian blood. It reminds me of a hadith where a companion of the Prophet sallAllahu has a child, and this child looks a bit different from him; he has a darker complexion, and yeah. he uh, he then he becomes doubtful of of this child and, and his wife, and the Prophet sallAllahu tells him so this could be a bloodline. That's right. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's the, 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 what people imagine uh, the time of the Sahaba to be like just a bunch of uh, Arabs. It, it, that's definitely not the case. And Jazakallah for illuminating that. So we focused a lot, Alhamdulillah, on the time of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Sahaba around him, uh, co- correcting the imagery uh, that people might have and talking about some of the more influential companions of African descent, can you talk about some other figures that were uh, perhaps before the time of the Prophet ﷺ that were also uh, significant uh, in Islamic history?
1: Um, and Well, you know, there's, there's, there's some discussions which are controversial discussions, um, you know, which we don't have to take a lot of time going into. I mean, people talk about Musa, alayhi yes. salam. You know, the, the fact that um, the Beni Israel, the Semitic people at the time, were people of color. And, and the fact that, you know, he was told to put his his, his, his hand, you know, inside. And it you know, became, yeah. of, his, of, his, of his pocket, you know, and then it would become,
0: um, I be
1: it must have been black. You know, <laughs> I don't want to go into the argument. Luqman, the famous Luqman, may Allah be pleased with him, who the, who the chapter was revealed, is definitely Nubian there's no doubt in anybody's mind uh, about the fact that Luqman, uh, an, you know, was uh, an African person as well. So um, again, the, the whole concept, you know, m- my position is we have to have a complete different understanding of the relationship of Africa to Arabia. And, and once we understand that the Red Sea is just a, a, a split but it's actually the same continent. And the Red Sea is not the Pacific Ocean. Um, people have been going back and forth. I mean, if, you, if you're if you in Djibouti, uh, uh, you know, on a clear day, uh, you know, maybe even parts of... So you can see Yemen, yeah. you literally see it, right? So it's not far away and people go, have been going back and forth uh, economically, culturally, politically, for thousands of years. So this is what we have to understand because if you look at it like that that the ancient Egyptians um, were actually black people as well. and you know you'll see that much of the, of the Quranic discussions that happened with Beni Israel um, is actually taken place in Africa itself because that's Misa, that's Egypt okay And, and, and if you see the closeness of the two, uh, that really, you know, the, the, the separation of Arabia from Africa is, is, is a European trick. Because it, it, was, it was the colonial map makers that drew the map and said, on this side is Africa, and on that side is Asia. Okay, these are all false constructs. And as Muslims, we're going to have to break these things down. To stop looking at ourselves as Asians or Africans or this or that. Because, you know, we're all children of Adam, salam. And Hawa. You know, so we, we're going to have to break it down But because of the of, of the effects of tribalism and, and white supremacy It'll take us time And so there's certain steps that we have to take first You know, to rewrite, you know, this history, inshallah And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help us uh, to continue on And, uh, you know, for those who want more of a, of a discussion on this I'll just mention it now we'll talk about later, you know, I will be doing a a course online, uh, which is called the Black Muslim Experience from Mecca to the Americas. And uh, this will be a four-part series starting um, Saturday, October 10th uh, at 1.30. And we'll be filming it as well so that people who come after a week, they can also join on and they can download the first week. So we'll be going into some of these discussions in more detail and then give some references because people would want reference sources. Uh, We don't have the time to go through all the references here, but inshallah, I hope to be able to provide more references you know, there so people can do some investigation themselves uh, in terms of some of these issues.
0: Uh, This was a very uh, beneficial uh, conversation. um, And I hope everyone else benefited as much as I have personally. And I encourage everyone to benefit from the sheikh and attend this course. And uh, we're going to conclude our conversation here, inshallah uh, ta'ala. Again, we thank you for, for coming here and and, and giving us uh, this knowledge. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put it in your skills in the day of judgment. Barakallahu feek. Hada wa akhru da'wana And hamdulillahi rabbil alameen. As-salamu alaykum wa wa barakatuh. alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.